Hey everyone, welcome to We Weren't Friends in High School, the podcast where I talk to former classmates from Wissahickon High School in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'm Brad Corbett, class of 2001. If you haven't yet, make sure you listen to episode 247 with class of 2000's Leanne Miller, aka Leanne Malseed. It's available everywhere you get your podcast. If you want to check out Leanne's giant wall of oils, you can see the full video of that conversation and others at youtube.com slash redshirtplayer. Throw me a thumbs up, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and don't forget to rate this podcast that you're listening to right now. It helps spread the word. And of course, follow Facebook and Instagram at We Weren't Friends in High School. I want to thank everyone for bearing with me, pushing the podcast back a week. I recently moved with the girlfriend and it went pretty well, but it is a real drain on your energy, especially when setting up a space to edit was somewhere in the middle of my list of priorities. The good news is my desk is set up now and I have a space that fits my laptop and I've begun working on a new space to record from the house. More on that at the end of this podcast. This week's episode is the last podcast I recorded from my place in the Italian market. I was in the middle of my pack when I was able to connect with Jessica Smith, a.k.a. Jess Dyer, class of 2004. The majority of the underclassmen that I came across were from chorus and musicals, and that's about the only place I knew Jess from, the one year we may have crossed during chorus in my senior year. Of course, we all follow each other on social media, but I never knew much about Jess until she began publicly sharing her experiences with addiction and recovery. I have reached out to Jess and asked her to come onto the podcast to tell her story, including her time at Wizzahickon. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Jessica Smith, a.k.a. Jess Dyer. So how are you? It's good to talk to you face to face in some sort of way. I know, right? I'm good. I'm good. I don't even think I've actually seen you since like I was still in high school, I think. Yeah. And uh, we're getting up there. So that's been a while. I know I have like memory of uh, running into you like outside of some some sort of party. And I can't imagine it must have been my senior year because you're class of 04, right? Mm -hmm. So it must have been my senior year. And I think I was with like Jess Lauer. And I can't imagine what party I could have been at. But I remember like running into you outside of there. And I feel like that's the last time I ever saw you. (laughs) That that could be true. (laughs) Thank God for social media, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting thing about you and, and you know, get right into it that I hadn't seen you in so long, hadn't really heard about you, but you see people posting on social media all the time. And it's kind of like that thing where you just assume everything's good. Everything's fine. Look, they're having a good time. They're having a great time. And then, you know, I guess, I guess probably about five years ago or so now, you like, you kind of made it public as far as your struggles with substance abuse and and addiction and you would post uh comparison pictures of yourself from previous years and you in current day this being five years ago now um and thinking like i remember when she posted that and you just never know uh what someone is going through what they're battling with um and what they've had to overcome to get to where they are when you're seeing them you know in in current day so (laughs) yeah it was a great lesson that that you taught me from from that from that and being open about your struggles Oh, you know what? Um, there's something that like I've taken to heart really is that um, we recover out loud so that others don't die quietly because like me finding my way into long-term sobriety, like I'm not in the majority, you know, like I'm in the minority by far, you know, most people don't make it. And I mean, you're on social media enough to see all the, you know, Oh damn, this one hurts rest in peace. You know, 
it's every day. I mean, at least for me, but like, that's also because I'm deeply ingrained in the recovery community. So, you know, I know people in recovery from high school and from every year since then. So it's, it's a constant battle, but like I, I recover out loud so that other people don't die quietly. It's great. I mean, it gives me, you know, I've got, I've got family that struggles with, with addiction and, you know, occasionally passing acquaintances that you hear of that, that have struggled and lost their battle. Um, and you're actually one of the, one of the few that I can point to of, you know, a positive recovery story. And probably until I knew that you were going through this and, and congratulations on your five years. Thank um, you. I, you know, I just, it was one of those things that when you see documentaries, no one really gives you uplifting stories. It's always kind of, you know, you watch those crappy shows on, on, TLC or whatever those channels are where they're covering addicts and and then at the end the parent it's just the parent talking about yeah he lost his lost his battle and you're just thinking like all you think is that it's a losing battle 100% of the time so you're a great example of how that doesn't happen thank you <laughs> yeah so before all of that and before I ran into at this party in high school <laughs> yeah. um where where did you start at Wizahickon uh, well, I, uh, I didn't move to Bluebell until the summer before my ninth grade year. Um, wow. my dad, uh, worked in it and we moved a lot. So, um, it was summertime. We moved, uh, my dad actually moved up here and lived, um, in Ambler on Butler Pike by himself for a year so that I could finish middle school in Virginia and my sister could finish elementary school. So as soon as school let out, we moved. So my mom, my sister, and I moved up here and, um, my dad was already here and we moved into our house in Bluebell. And I like, I mean, I had lived in Virginia for so long. I had no idea that everyone went to the shore over the summer. <laughs> Cause I mean, and our, our neighborhood was still being built. So there just like, weren't very many people here to get to know. So, you know, I spent that entire summer like sitting on my desktop computer on uh, what was that AOL instant messenger, yeah. like the old school one, um, you know, instant messaging all my friends in Virginia about how much Pennsylvania sucked. But <laughs> yeah, then I started uh, actually uh, my mom convinced me it was a good idea to get involved in a sport. Um, and when we moved to Virginia, my dad said he wasn't going to make us move again. And then we ended up moving up here. So I was mad and I played soccer my whole life. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it up just because I'm mad. <laughs> so back at him. yeah, you know, cause that's what my like, what 13, 14 year old brain thought was a good idea. Um, but I actually ended up joining the cross country team. Oh, um, yeah. And they had a camp before school started. So that was my first introduction into a second. What part of Virginia were you coming from? Uh, Northern Virginia, Loudoun okay. County. Um, okay. It was another, uh, another neighborhood that we moved into while it was still being built. Um, so, I mean, I loved living there. It was super great. You know, I did summer swim team. I played soccer, you know, everyone in the neighborhood was friends, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was great. And then I came up to Pennsylvania and like, you know, I, I was living in Virginia and no one brought cookies to our door and welcomed <laughs> us to the neighborhood and nobody seemed to be hanging out. So like, you know, I seemed, it seemed like a really strange place, but you know, I got used to it. 
uh, once you join the the cross country team and you're and you're doing camp uh, before school starts, were you making were you making friends or was it still kind of like I'm just kind of hanging out in this thing waiting for the school to start? A little bit of both. I mean, like I I enjoyed the company of you know the other girls on the team, uh, mostly the older girls. They were the nicest, at least. So, um, you know, I did that and. You know, I did still didn't really feel like I was ready to start school when it happened. But at least when I was walking through the halls, I knew some people and not mm-hmm. absolutely no one, because I'm pretty sure it would have been a little more traumatizing than it was if I didn't know anybody. <laughs> you know, part of this is me feeling like I only had such a little bit of, of friends uh, going through school. And I remember our first day, we got like the half day at the high school to get the lay of the land and you kind of have an early dismissal day on the very first day of ninth grade and you're walking through and the hallways are empty, but it's so big. And for me only having like four or five friends coming out of the middle school, I never saw any of my friends. It took like three <laughs> yeah. years till I saw any <laughs> friends of mine um, for you. And, and not, I don't know what your Virginia school was like as far as what you would have been going into for high school size wise, but what was your, your expectation for the wizard Hicken as far as size versus Virginia, what you were originally preparing for and how do you handle that, whether it's smaller or bigger than what you were expecting? I mean, I think Northern Virginia is very densely populated. Okay. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, because, you know, that's getting back in some years now, that the high school that I would have gone to in Virginia was a lot bigger. Mm. Um, you know, I I don't even remember how many people were in my middle school, but. I, f- I really think it was bigger in Virginia. Just so many more people there. So then when you're when you're in the high school and you knew a couple people, a couple older, you said the older kids were a little bit nicer, but mm-hmm. now you're taking classes and it's just your grade. Um, do you start making friends? Is, does it come from 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 cross country or does it come from other places? I mean, it was really more other places, um, you know, classes, but I also... Um, made a lot of friends in the grade above me because um, I wasn't like math is not my strong suit by any means. Sure. Um, but my ninth grade math class was with a bunch of 10th graders. So <clears throat> I remember um, it was Ms. DiGregorio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say maybe geometry, but again, math's not my thing. Um, and well, you were taking were- in 10th grade. I took geometry in 10th grade. So you were taking in ninth grade, you were taking a 10th grade math class. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I was, but yeah. So you must have played. So math wasn't your thing, but you must have placed up from from Virginia. Well, I I did, but like not nearly as far as I could that, have. That okay, so let, let's make it relative, okay? Because I I think I was expected to place a lot higher than I did. Okay. But uh, I remember um, I was in class with a bunch of tenth graders who um, obviously were just a year separated from being hazed as a freshman. Mm. And, you know, I got written on and, you know, just, it was spirit day, you know, like every class wears their own whatever. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think Miss D got like really mad and like shut it down because there weren't that many of us that were ninth graders in the 10th grade class, but like I had writing all over my arms and, wow. you know. Did, uh, did you have stuff outside of school socially with these kids that were that were older that you like struck up a friendship with or uh well 
one of my neighbors uh, was in the graduating class ahead of mine. So sometimes I hung out with him and his friends um, and I kept doing cross country, but I'm pretty sure that was the only thing I really did, you know, outside of school. So anything that I did socially wasn't, you know, necessarily school related. Interesting. So go to school, go to track, come home, start all over again the next day. Yeah, <laughs> pretty so you, much. So what are you doing once you're home? Are you are you concentrating on homework? Are you talking to your friends still on AIM from Virginia? Are you watching TV shows? Like what's your what's your social hobby after hours? Uh, I mean, homework, but like, really, I did as little of that as possible because so, like I had undiagnosed ADD. Oh. And so, you know, everyone thought it was a behavior problem that I just like, didn't want to study. I didn't want to do the work, but like what was really going on was that like, it was hard. It was really, really hard and frustrating for me. Um, and I am intelligent. So I got by for a long time on just taking in what I learned in class and doing the bare minimum at home to get by. But, you know, that only gets you so far. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I had this same where I, I just I never diagnosed. I could be un I could be undiagnosed. I don't know for all I've still never gotten it checked out. But I had mm -hmm. a real issue with concentrating on uh, mm -hmm. taking notes. I've talked at length about my difficulties of the way that classes were taught with focus on making an outline. And you just look at the outline and you copy the outline. And I was so obsessed with getting my outline just so with your Roman numerals and your capital A's and your letter, <laughs> and your number one, and your lowercase A's. And I was so obsessive about copying that down perfectly that I was not taking in the information. It's hard. I mean, like, I'm actually jealous of the kids that are in school now because like there's so many more resources for all the different ways that people learn, you know, and I mean, I'm sure some of that was starting to be implemented when we were that age, but not so much, you know, it was, it was pretty rigid. So, you know, I'm glad that at least now people are more aware of it and, you know, kids can actually have their education a little bit more catered to the way that they learn. It's funny. I was, I was talking to someone about educational tools and I said, I'm not sure how they do it anymore in school. In my day, we had transparencies. I don't know if that's still a thing. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> We do smart boards now. And I was like, oh, right. That's even better. <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> but yeah, the minute no, they would turn out the lights. Lucky. Yeah, the minute they would turn <laughs> out the lights in the school, it's like, okay, nap time. Everyone look up here at the tr at the transparency sheet. Yeah, I think I got in trouble more than once for falling asleep during class. <laughs> um, so did you have, you said math wasn't it, but did you have a subject that you were good at in school? I mean, I always uh, tended towards English and writing, um, writing mostly because it's a lot easier than reading when it mm. comes to, you know, taking stuff in. So, you know, I did a lot of creative writing stuff. I mean, I was a huge musical theater nerd, <laughs> so really? I was intensely focused on that in high school as well. Um, you know, I enjoyed social studies because it wasn't uh it was memorization but it was stories basically you know like all I had to do was set my mind to be like well someone's telling me a story it's just a real story about things that happened in the past and that was easier for me that's interesting you know now that you say that you were a musical theater nerd 
I feel like where I ran into you might have been. Did you do um, did you do My Fair Lady? No, I didn't do My Fair Lady, but I did Les Mis. Okay, I was going to say, I feel like maybe I ran into you at, like, a cast par- at the cast party or something. It's the only party <laughs> I ever went to in high school. Um, and so I can't remember, I can't think of any other thing. So when you said that, I was like, oh, wow. Um, why didn't you do My Fair Lady? Um, this is my other obsession. <laughs> like, uh, maybe, I think I was just like too, I don't know, afraid to do it. Oh, you know what? That was, uh, I was running cross country. Um, and uh, I d- couldn't really do both, you know, and at that point I did all three seasons of running. I did cross country in the fall. I did indoor track in the winter and I did outdoor track in the spring. So, you know, at that point I was, uh, I was doing the track and, you know, running thing. And then I think I gave that up after 10th grade, which is why in 11th and 12th, I went full bore towards the musicals. Mrs. Reckner, who was our director um, through my high school time for the musicals, hated the conflict with sports. Luckily, I didn't yeah. play. I didn't play any, but there were <laughs> being, you know, the guys were, were so short to come by. Anytime she casted any of the guys that were doing basketball or uh, anything that that required time in the afternoon from like the late from late winter until the spring she was like it was like a war against coaches uh to get these kids into the auditorium for practice every day yeah i i definitely remember the kids that tried to do everything right and them constantly having to like make compromises and like i mean i think i even remember teachers like duking it out a little bit over <laughs> which activity a student was going to be available for at yeah. what time. Um, you know, you didn't do middle school with us, but I always look at middle school as kind of like a turning point for maturity uh, where the kids who are much grown or at least acting much grown or um, become a little bit more prominently known. Um, and I always felt way, way ahead, uh, behind uh, a lot of those kids. Um, you coming into high school, what was what were you noticing as far as, you know, dating, maturity levels, partying, things like that? <laughs> were you was it prevalent in your grades as as I thought it was in mine? Were you ready for those t- sort of things? Were you included in those worlds? Uh, I mean, yes and no, more so towards the end of high school. Hmm. You know, I still um, I still had a, kind of like a fear of that, like earlier in high school. Um you know, I mean, I knew people were doing it. I just wasn't like, you know, I wasn't necessarily doing it. I think it was like ninth grade. I had three of my best friends come over for a sleepover for, um, my birthday. And like, I think we, uh, we didn't go anywhere. We just snuck out of my house. We like put on all black clothes and we waited until the middle of the night and we snuck out of the house and like went to the end of the cul-de-sac and, like freaked out and came back. And I mean, that was, you know, obviously that changed quite a bit later on, but you know, that was, uh, that was pretty much where my head was at the beginning of high school anyway. Yeah. It's funny, you know, that for me, my, my fun was to just ride around with friends playing, you know, music really loud and we didn't drink, we didn't smoke. Um, we didn't even go to anyone's house. <laughs> we, I, would get, I would get picked up and we would just drive from like Ambler to Bluebell. Uh, we would hit like bumps on the train tracks uh, and then we'd turn around and we'd come back. 
and that mm. would be and we yeah. would do that every night oh yeah no it was i mean i did a lot of driving around later you know particularly on bean road but you know i think we all did that at some point <laughs> what um what were your friends then through high school or at least in the in the earlier years when you mentioned that you had um for your birthday you had friends come over what was what was your friend group um at that point um if i remember correctly it was three girls uh lauren schwartz kristen mckernan and julie lund um and those were those were my friends for a while um but then i mean i started smoking cigarettes i started like doing bad stuff so you know the the friend group became a lot more fluid after that as far as like you know well who else smokes cigarettes and you know who else does this so you know the friend group uh i don't really even think it was very consistent at all it was just kind of all over the place yeah that's so interesting you you describe it as fluid because i think one of the things that um i talk about with with other guests when we talk about the cool kid crowd was just that the cool kid crowd they partied, most of them, you know, drank or did or smoked or other things and were having sex. And the group was large. And yeah. when people ask about when people who don't go to Wizahickon ask about like, you know, when I'm interviewing people, it's like, oh, they're a cool kid crowd or whatever. And they go, well, who are their friends? It's like, oh, well, they had tons of friends. And and any given day, they could hang out with 20, 30 different, you know, rotating group of kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's funny that you mentioned fluid. Because that's exactly like, it seems like smoking cigarettes was your into the cool crowd. I mean, at that point, yeah. Later on in life, it was other stuff. But, you know, cigarettes were the gateway. <laughs> Do you remember where you started, how you started smoking? I mean, I think I had my first cigarette when I lived in Virginia. It was like a, a friend of mine. Her name was Karen. She lived on the outskirts of the neighborhood and... Uh, like in the woods and mm. she had an older brother that was a teenager and he was always smoking cigarettes, so stole one of his cigarettes and like went out into the woods and smoked it. And like, it made us so dizzy that we were like holding on to the trees. <laughs> and I mean, I look back at that now and that's so funny, but you it know, it still happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, prior to COVID, I was, I was a big fan of, of the drunken, Hey, I've never do this, but can I bum a cigarette thing? that I'd mm -hmm. love to do to people out of bars and stuff. And every time I would, it would just be a shutdown for the night. I'd start sweating and <laughs> I, yeah, it would just be, I'd be like, right, I can't go back inside. I can't go back inside. I believe. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. It is you would think, and this, we're talking like in my thirties, you would think I would have learned my <laughs> lesson, but uh, I have like three friends that smoke cigarettes that if we're hanging out and and drinking beers or whatever, like they could get me to go outside with them and, and smoke a cigarette. I regret it a hundred percent of the time, every time. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're drinking, there's a whole bunch of stuff that seems like a really good idea at the time that, you know, rarely is actually a good idea. Very true. Um, I didn't learn that until my twenties. I'm assuming you learned that a little bit earlier in life than I did. Uh, I mean, I would love to say yes. I mean, I, uh, later on in high school, I drank heavily, um, you know, wherever, whenever. Um, and I mean, looking back, it was like, it was really the jumping off point into 
my issues with substance abuse, you know, and I smoked a lot of weed, you know, occasionally there was something harder around. And I mean, if you put it in front of me, I did it. Um, you know, in the, in the program, we call it, uh, anything to take you out of yourself. So it didn't really matter what it was, you know, that someone was offering me. I was interested in it if it was going to make me feel not like me. So, um, I mean, how I'm almost 36 and I just had five years clean and sober. So I did not, I mean, it wasn't, it's not that I didn't know that these things weren't a bad idea. I just couldn't stop myself. What does, uh, not feel like you mean? Uh, well, you know, uh, like a lot of other addicts and alcoholics, um, I was never comfortable in my own skin. Um, you know, I, I know what it's like to be the new kid and, uh, not necessarily know where you fit in. Um, even when you have found a place that you feel like you fit in, like when I really got into chorus and musical theater in high school, like, I mean, that's the closest thing to an actual solid friend group I had, mm. but even in that group, I still always felt less than or different than, and, you know, like, I mean, the best way I, the best way to describe it is I just didn't feel like even my skin fit me, hmm. you know? So the first time I took a drink of alcohol and the first time I did plenty of other stuff that like lifted. And I mean, the best metaphor that I've ever heard for it. And I use it all the time in meetings. And when I'm like speaking at meetings is like when you're driving on the highway in the pouring rain, right. Hmm. And it's deafening. Like it's just pounding your car over and over. You can't hear the music. You can't hear yourself think. And then you drive under like an overpass. And for a split second, everything is silent. That is what drugs and alcohol were for me. They were driving under the overpass. So all the deafening stuff going on in my head was silent. I mean, at first... Anyway, you know, but obviously you get to the point where the alcohol and drugs aren't doing that for you anymore. anymore. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's that's what it was for me. It was like it was a social lubricant. It was, you know, it was I felt like I was most me mm. when I had a substance in my body. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink like everybody else did. I didn't smoke weed like everybody else did. Like I took it to the extreme every single time. I was just going to ask you, I, I talked to Francesco Santo a few, uh, about a month ago who talked about his issues with, with addiction. And he said that he was kind of the outlier of his friends. He was going, he was invited to parties. Uh, where kind of some of these things were open up, but no one was really doing the things that he was doing. He always took it to another level. So that's what you're saying your situation kind of was too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was always the drunkest, always the highest. Like, I mean, I really don't even think, even as, even as a teenager, I drank to blackout. Hmm. So, I mean... I was fun for a little bit, but then I was like the annoying girl that couldn't stand up and was puking all over the place. And it was, it wasn't good. Did you, did you have those separate friend groups? You mentioned, you know, chorus and, and musicals. Did you have like, you know, your kind of the, your friends that you were doing drugs and, and drinking with, and then 
a different group of friends that maybe lived a more sober life while in school? I mean, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, like the fun thing for me about being part of like chorus and musical theater was like, it's a little bit of everybody, Mm. you know, like anybody can, you know, play sports and whatever, but like you can do that and still have a passion for music, you know, and have fun acting. So like there were just so many different kinds of people in, you know, the, the music area of high school. So, I mean, some people that I hung out with were doing stuff like that, that I was in chorus with and Mm. the musical and others, not so much, you know, like I said, I floated around a lot. My, my friend group was super fluid. Yeah. It's funny. Like the, the friends that I made from chorus or, or even like the the strong acquaintances and, and the houses that I went to, I felt like there was never anything like that going on, at least with like my group of of seniors of, of class of 01 um, mm-hmm. in chorus. But again, it's a large group. And I think talking about like where I was socially and mature maturity level, um, I probably gravitated to maybe some of the safer groups. I wish I had done that sometimes, <laughs> although I'm sure just with most of the groups that I was in. I would have alienated them at some point with, you know, my behavior. Yeah. Does So when you're, when you're living that way and you talk about, you're always the drunkest, um, always the highest do your friends, it does become annoying for your friends then to, are they looking after you or is it just embarrassing or how is that? How does that go with alienation? Well, I mean, all of the above, you know, like, and eventually you stop getting invited places because no one wants to have to take care of you. I mean, even, even like in college too, you know, like I thought I had all these great friends and, you know, eventually none of them wanted to talk to me anymore because, you know, nobody wants to have to take care of somebody else, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, like I was a fall down blackout drunk every single time. So, you know, eventually that gets on even the most patient people's nerves. How do you um, get away, assuming you did, how do you get away with that at, at such a young age as far as, you know, going to school every day? Were you going to school every day? Um, yeah, mostly. Um, yeah, how do you I mean, how do you hide hide that or keep it? hush from grown-ups your parents (laughs) i mean i didn't drink at school ever i don't think i mean i smoked weed before school i you know whatever but you know it was more so like after school on the weekends you know and until i went to college like i mean i was a blackout drinker in high school whenever i drank but it wasn't as constant as later years when you have your, when you have free time during the day. Yeah. Um, did you want to, did you have in high school something that you were like passionate about or something that maybe you thought like, as you were getting older into your teens, like, Oh, this could be a future. Did you see something for a future self being that you were just so uncomfortable? Um, did you feel good about anything that you were, that you were doing or that you had an interest in that you thought I could be this? No, (laughs) no, I wish I had. I kept thinking, you know, that something was going to come up, right? I was going to come across something that just like really ignited my passion. And I mean, that was musical theater for me. 
Like I could have done that for the rest of my life, you know, not like, you know, not needing to be like the star or anything like that, but like that community and, you know, doing shows and, you know, performing, like I loved all of that, but like, I mean, I, I didn't think it was something I could ever make a career out of. So I just kept waiting for something else to inspire me, but it it just really never happened. Where'd your passion for musical theater come from? Did you have it when you were younger? I did. Um, I just, I always loved to sing when I was little, you know, I mean, anything, everything. And uh, my parents actually introduced my sister and I to Broadway and I fell in love. I mean, you could take me into New York City any day of the week with any shows like available to see and I'll find something that, you know, just like turns my world, Mm. you know? So I was always like that. So I always did chorus and, um, you know, it was just, it was just so much fun. And like, there's something about music too, Mm -hmm. you know? Just like it, it like intensifies everything and the music like helps you express things that you can't necessarily express yourself, you know, and when you step into the musical theater aspect of it, like you get to take on that persona and like bring a character alive. Like those things are all just amazing. Yeah, I, I like that, too. I also um, I love the camaraderie with Mm -hmm. you know with the classmates doing musicals and it's a tough gig it's a really really tough (laughs) gig which you know is probably why generally you know people who are who don't think that they're good enough it's not something they keep going for um you know older it's why i quit senior year because I, i wasn't passionate about what we were doing and it was way too much work to put mm-hmm. in if i wasn't if i wasn't passionate um, it was a lot of work, even yeah. for the high school productions. Oh, my gosh. It was every day, every day <laughs> till, you know, seven o'clock at night. And I mean, hell, it was just it was tough just on my mom, you know, like having to pick me up after <laughs> after work every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was fun, though. It was fun. It was fun. It's and it's timeless memories, you know, at least for me that it's one of those things that, you know, I'll never I'll never be on Broadway. But uh, I'm glad I had some of that experience, at least on a smaller level, um, because I, at that time I was passionate about it. I thought I was going to go to I thought I was going to be like a, a Broadway actor. I thought I was going to go to college for theater. You know, that's where that's where my head was at, probably in like 11th grade. Yeah. Didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, I really envy the people that can you know, find something they're that passionate about in high school and follow through with it. Because I mean, like I said, nothing ever really inspired me like that. So, you know, I went into college undeclared, you know, and looking back, whenever people ask me about it, they asked what I majored in. And my answer is finding myself. Hmm. So what were you what college did you go to? I went to IUP. Uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, what was your selection process like for college? Did you like, were you just figuring it out and just winging it? Or I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about college when I was applying. 
Um, my parents had never really done a, a big college. My, my parents had never like gone to college like that. My uncle was a professor, but like he didn't share that wisdom uh, <laughs> with me. And so I didn't know much. And all I knew was like temple, 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 temple. So I went to temple yeah. for a tour, stood out there on the campus like, oh, yes, this is where I want to go. <laughs> didn't realize how your grades had to be better. You had to apply before the day before the deadline. Uh, mm -hmm. and, they, and they told me not just yet. So I, you know, I ended up doing two years at Monco more out of inactivity and indecision than probably anything else. Um, what was your path of figuring out what to do? Did you know? Um, well, uh, with my, like, you know, my ADD and everything else, like my, my GPA wasn't like stellar. It wasn't terrible. I think I graduated with like a three, two. Um, so I applied to four schools in Pennsylvania because especially if I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, I didn't want my parents to be paying out of state tuition. Right. Um, I applied to East Stroudsburg, Millersville, IUP and Cutstown. And oh God, my mom's going to watch this. So I'm a little ashamed to admit this. Um, I picked schools that did not require that I write an essay for the application. <laughs> Smart. Um, cause I just didn't like, I didn't want to, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to call it laziness cause I don't think that was it, but like maybe I just didn't feel like I had anything to say, you know, mm. like, cause I had no direction. I was really just, you know, hoping that at some point I would come across something that inspired me. Um, so I applied to all four schools and I got in and I picked the you one that was furthest away. You got in all four though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I picked the one that was furthest away. Um, you know, with my, like my party habits and my drinking and tending to alienate people, I really just wanted to get as far away as I could, uh, and start over. So I picked IUP, which is like about a five hour drive. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, you would only, you only went to Wizzahickon for four years. Uh, often when I talk to people who come, you know, in their teens to the area, they say that where they came from is what they kind of consider home. Um, how do you feel about you moved away, you know, five hours away for college? Did you, do you look back at, at Bluebell as home? Was it Hicken as home? Do you look at Virginia as home? Is it just an honest mix for you or neither? It's a mix, honestly, because, I mean, I was actually born in Northern Virginia in Fairfax County. Um, I was, I think, under two years old when uh, my parents moved to Michigan. Oh, that's uh, We didn't live there for very long, um, apparently, it's really snowy and the weather's kind of miserable. And, um, you know, my parents weren't really happy there. Uh, so then we moved to Lansdale. Uh, I went to elementary school in the North Penn school district. And then that's when we moved back to Northern Virginia. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> and wild. I stayed. Yeah. I stayed there for the end of elementary school and all of middle school. And then we moved to Bluebell and I did high school, but, I mean, Philadelphia's home. You know, if people ask where I'm from, that's what I say. You say Philadelphia. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm okay. an Eagles fan. I'm a Phillies fan. <laughs> like, Philadelphia sports, Philadelphia life. 
you know, this is where I've lived the longest and this is home to me. So were you, I mean, when you, were you looking to leave before you left while you were there for, I mean, when you move there in going into ninth grade and like you want to quit soccer to, to punish your parents <laughs> for pulling you away and you hate it and it's kind of yeah. weird. And then, you know, shortly after you, you, you know, maybe a year or two later, you start falling into, into your habits. Um, were you happy with like where you were? Did you feel like the friends that you had were like true friends as maybe the ones that you left in Virginia that you were instant messaging when you had first gotten here? <laughs> I mean, I still have friends from Virginia that I was friends with in middle school. Actually, um, my childhood best friend is uh, from there. She still lives there. Um, you know, we actually, we both have two kids. And I mean, you know, when your little girls, oh, our kids are going to grow up together. It's going to be great. Um, so I have a 12-year-old. Um, and then her oldest is going to be four this summer. Okay. And we were actually pregnant at the same time with our second kids. Uh, so I have the 12 year old and I also have a two year old and, uh, my friend Katie's son was born a few months after my daughter, Charlie. So, um, you know, we see each other every summer. Um, you know, we do our best to show up for the important things. Like, sure. but if you ask me who my best friend is, it's her from Virginia. So, yeah. But you know, then there's here and the rest of my life since then has been here okay um that's so interesting that with just the four years um that you were able to kind of connect i find that that's kind of rare yeah well when you move as much as i did it's so hard to feel like you are putting down roots you know like obviously i don't really remember um the first couple places I lived, you know, but I remember living in Lansdale. And yeah, I, was, I was just going to say, you don't remember glowing Lansdale back in the, <laughs> in the early nineties. Oh, I remember Lansdale. That was, uh, I mean, it looks the same to yeah. me now, but you know, <laughs> I remember that that's, those are where my first memories kick in. Okay. And then I remember a lot about Northern Virginia, but then, you know, after that came back and lived in Bluebell and, I mean, you know, our, our gun violence statistics aren't great for Philadelphia, but like, it's great. You know, the city's great. You can find something to do anywhere. We're so close to the shore, you know, and the Poconos and, you know, why not? Like, it's kind of cool living here. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned you didn't know that everyone went to the shore. What did you do in Virginia as a kid for like vacation? Well, we always, uh, we had a timeshare. We still have a timeshare, uh, on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think starting from when I was 12, we did that every summer. Um, and I mean, those are, that's really the only memorable thing I remember about my summers, hmm. you know, and my, I don't even, my parents didn't get a shore house until after high school. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. After high school. So, I mean, we would go down occasionally to other people's houses, um, you know, but our major, our major trip was always down to South Carolina. Wow. That's a drive from here. Yeah, it really is. I think it's like 12 hours. 
you know, as I've done it as an adult actually mm. driving. So it's a lot, it's actually a lot harder when you're driving than when you're sitting in the back seat listening to your music or, you know, later on when you had portable DVD players and oh, whatever yeah. you could entertain yourself. <laughs> it's not quite as easy when you're actually driving. Yeah, I just did a, a drive over Memorial Day weekend to uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and that was eight. That was eight hours. So that was a chore. Uh, oh, for yeah. Like, you know, a family reunion. So we were there for like three days, turn around, come right back. The way back was <laughs> rough because I was having memories of I just did this on the way down. <laughs> yeah. Um, you hadn't yeah. quite recovered from the trip down there by the time you had to go back. And you're right. It is like I've got such fun memories of being a kid and going to like Boston. And mm -hmm. I remember like I was 10 and it was when I first got in a I got my first Walkman and two, <laughs> two cassette tapes of MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Them and Criss Cross <laughs> Totally Crossed Out. And I listened to these two tapes nonstop in my headphones on my Walkman sitting in the back seat, ignoring my mom and my grandmother the entire time, literally just listening to Jump and Can't Touch This stopping it turning it over fast forwarding it turning it back around and playing the song back again i did that for like six hours yeah kids today don't know how lucky they are just being able to hit a button and start a song over and you can just set it so that the song plays over and over and over again like, right repeat <laughs> <laughs> so you like they don't even have to push a button if they don't want to if they're just in a loop they can set it so that it just plays over and over again mm-hmm did the you Walkman have era. Did you have a, a favorite song uh, or band or, or artist from the high school high school time? I mean, kind of. I was like still super into boy bands yeah. <laughs> like at the beginning of high school. Actually, um, the year before we moved up here, uh, my parents uh, got my sister and I tickets to see NSYNC. Mm. That was my first concert. It was a big deal. And back then, Pink was their opening act. Wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we went to RFK Stadium, uh, which is where DC United soccer team plays. And uh, we saw NSYNC. And I mean, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees, like, God, you know, that, all the heartthrobs. That had to be so early. Like that was what, 97 or something like that. That had to be like really early in, uh, in NSYNC's run, right? That was like first album. Yeah. Oh Tide, yeah. No, I was obsessed with insane. their first album. Like their first album was like, I think uh, my mom says one of her like only memories about painting my room in our house in Virginia was that she had to do it while she was listening to the NSYNC CD over and over and over again. I think I might've traumatized her with it. Justin or JC? I mean, neither. But, oh, I mean, if I have to choose between the two, Justin. Okay. Because, like, especially because he really, like, I don't know, made himself more human, becoming an actor and whatever. So, like, you know, I, I <laughs> well, I mean, come on. They're like, they're celebrities. And, you know, when they're, especially when they're just like, you know, singing and dancing and whatever, like, you know, you're not necessarily getting a, feel for their personality but yeah. like you know and me saying justin is from like years later from seeing him in movies and stuff but i was always a lance fan really like i had a thing for like 
uh, like overlooked people, like the underdog <laughs> and like people that weren't as popular as other people. So I, I really dug Lance. Oh, that's hilarious. Look at, <laughs> look at that overlooked blonde hair, blue eye guy there. Was he blue eyes? I feel like he had blue eyes. Um, I couldn't tell. I definitely had blonde hair. The spiky, the oh, spiky. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, he never got any solo parts. He was just like the bass on like, yep. I remember, I think it was, uh, he had one song where he kind of got to sing. I want to say it was like drive myself crazy or God must've spent a little more time with you. One of those. And I was kind of like, yeah, go ahead, Lance. You get that part. <laughs> I remember him having like the, like a, a bass, uh, part that stood out more in the, um, the everything I own song. Oh, see, I don't even know the deep cuts. Well, I mean, when you listen that, to yeah, the yeah. What's same that, what's that album track, over track, and over again. Yeah, track nine or something. <laughs> well, that I couldn't tell you, but I still I can still hear it in my mind. Um, favorite in sing song? I mean, I like I'm gonna have to say bye bye bye, because you know, we learned the dance and you know, it was on the radio all the time, mm. you know, back before you know, people all had CD players in their car. So, you know, listening to the radio and, mm -hmm. you know, that was the one that will come on the most. So, yeah, that was it. Um, and no one ever gives them any credit, but I was a big fan of five. Do you remember five? Vaguely, but I they wasn't the, like into it. They were the British. Yeah, no one was. It was just me. Like, <laughs> they were the most hip hop of them all, but they had that baby when the lights go out. And that's the only song I know. Oh, but, I definitely remember that. Yeah, song. that was like my jam. And I always like maybe it's my overlook syndrome where I'm rooting. I was for just going to say you have a little bit of that in you, too. I'm rooting for the entire group that no one's. Been. But you know what? I You're totally right. I was totally like that with like Jessica Simpson. I'm like. They don't like her because she's like thicker and more developed and like and they're and they're body shaming her. But she has the best voice. She's the closest thing to Mariah Carey that that's coming out right now. Like mm -hmm. I was that irresistible remix with Bow Wow. Ooh, <laughs> fire. It fire. takes a, it takes a very secure man to admit that. Yeah, I love I even now I still like uh, I still like like I'll get into some of these music, some of these pop stars albums now. Uh, 20 years later and I was like these are really good well I haven't really had a huge opportunity to listen to a lot of current stuff um I have two kids so Keep I am busy does it I am always busy like the fact that I even had time to do this is because my oldest is at her dad's house and my youngest is spending the day with her mom so Perfect. I actually I got to a, an AA meeting today I actually you know had a slightly longer shower than I normally get because I didn't have to worry about what was going on when I was in the shower. Look, so, at, this, look at all this self-care time I've afforded you. Oh, I can't even thank you enough for that. It's been <laughs> a very relaxing day for me. You're going to have to, you're going to have to fake schedule yourself into some more podcasts. <laughs> well, you know, one of the nice things about like having family close by, um, at least my youngest daughter's uh, other side of her family. Like she goes and sees her mom once a week and that's great. And, you know, I have my family here. So when I really need it, it's there. Yeah. Um, what was your, what was your relationship like, like during your, during your, your days of addiction with, 
you know, your parents, I see now the guys look so happy and great. I can't imagine it was always like that, but as it's, you know, as you're like needing help, what is that like? Were you still in college when this was all coming about? Well, I, like I said, I went to IUP. Um, there's not much to do there. Um, like I always told people when I was trying to like give them an idea of like how podunk it kind of is, is that Kmart was an anchor store in the mall there. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So, um, like there was like a little town built around the campus, Yeah. you know, that extended as far as the Walmart, but mm. then there was nothing, um, nothing. And I mean, a ton of bars and whatever, because it was a college town, um, but that's when, uh, that's when my drug use really took off. Um, because, you know, I found out that if you mix alcohol with certain other drugs, you can drink a whole lot more alcohol. And if you mix them with that, those drugs, then you can stay awake longer. You're not the sloppy one. Um, you're not the one that's constantly, you know, needing to be taken care of. Although eventually I still was anyway, mm. but, um, my drug use really took off. Then, um, I ended up, uh, dropping out of school and moving back home. And I mean, I didn't even really understand what was wrong with me at that point. I really just thought I was a party girl like that. You know, I just really like to drink and party and have a good time. You know, I really didn't understand, um, what the problem was. Mm. Um, and then when I moved back home, I got introduced to Oxycontin and, um, for anyone that's watched, uh, dope sick on Hulu, um, you know, that, that changed everything for me. Um, it turned me into a thief. It turned me into a liar. Um, you know, I, I could not be trusted in any way because I was so addicted to Oxycontin that that was literally all that mattered. It didn't matter who I had to screw over, who I had to rob, who I had. I mean, and I'm not saying I like stuck anybody up at gunpoint. I'm just saying if you turn your back and your purse is near me, it wasn't safe. So, um, you know, that like that really took off. And even at that point, I don't think my family understood either. You know, it wasn't um, like the recovery community has worked very hard over a lot of years to reduce and we hope to eventually remove the stigma attached to addiction issues. But at that time, it, it wasn't something people talked about. You know, the people that were addicts in families got sent away and, you know, whatever. So, you know, I, I got kicked out of my parents' house. Um, I left voluntarily because, you know, it was cramping my style with my drug use. Um, I mean, I alienated everyone that I loved and that loved me. Um, so, and I actually went to, a, a Christian program, uh, out in Cresco, Iowa at one point. Um, and they call it the Christian alternative to rehab and it's nothing like rehab, Okay. nothing like rehab. It was just basically like, cultivating your relationship with God and teaching you how to lean on that instead of drugs. And as great as it was for my spirituality and my relationship with God, it did nothing for my addiction issues. 
So it actually wasn't until I got sober this last time that I had a therapist um, that sat down and talked to my parents. And, you know, it wasn't that they didn't want to understand because they did want to understand. But she said something that, you know, made it easier for them to understand. So, you know, I mean, I had periods of time where I was, you know, in better graces than others. But it wasn't until I got sober this last time when I like did, I did almost nine months of inpatient treatment. Um, I just wanted everything I could get. I wanted all the knowledge I could get. I wanted to work through all the issues as much as I could. So I stayed in treatment until insurance would not pay for me to be in there any longer. And our relationship has been great since then. But, you know, I like I really hurt my sister. Um you know, I did a lot of damage to that relationship. I broke my parents' hearts over and over and over again. Um, but you know, in the program, uh, some, like when you make amends, you know, you ask somebody what you can do, but, um, like with those relationships, uh, I make what's called living amends. So like I choose every day to get up and stay clean and sober and show up where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be there. And, you know, my family can count on me. So like my amends to them are living amends, staying sober and, you know, just always doing the next right thing. Um, how do you get to Iowa when you're in, in, when you leave your house and you're, I'm assuming you're like 20 at that point. Oh no, I was, um, uh, late twenties. Oh, okay. Late twenties. Um, it was, a uh, it was a plane ride to Minneapolis uh, then it was, uh, like, a an, a shuttle service from the airport to, uh, I think it was, uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Hmm. And then someone from, it's called, uh, mission teens, the place I went to, um, I, someone from the mission came to get me from a pickup point at that point. Cause I'm pretty sure that that's the closest airport to Cresco, Iowa is, uh, at least one that would take me to Philadelphia was Minneapolis. So did your parents actually send you to this? Well, it's actually free. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, uh, how you do you have get to, well, I guess my question, how do you like, literally like, do you buy, do you like, do you have money in all this during this time? And, and like, well, to actually get um, yourself a plane? I mean, my parents were the ones that found the program okay. and they asked me if I would be willing to go and get help. Um, and I said, yes. So they put me on a plane okay. um, and I was there for nine months um, but everything at the mission is, uh, like basically, I mean, they rely on God to provide things for the mission. So like local people donate things and whatever. Um, but there's no cost associated with being there. You just have to come with enough bus fare so that if you get kicked out, they can put you on a bus to go back home. I know a couple of jobs that do that sort of thing too. <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was a crazy experience. I'm really glad I went. I mean, yeah. you know, I, uh, like, you know, I am, I'm Christian. I'm, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm very proud of that. I lean very heavily on my relationship with God in my daily life and especially in my recovery. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't the thing that made the difference for me to be able to find some long-term sobriety. 
What did you find in the one that worked, the the inpatient that you stayed at for nine months that where it finally kicked in? What what worked for you? Well, I mean Or what did you learn that that was that you've been able to keep with you this whole time? Well, at that point, um, I was as broken as I had ever been. Um I have a 12 year old daughter and I have been sober for five years. So obviously um, she was deeply affected by my addiction and alcoholism for, you know, the first seven years of her life. Um, And I kept losing her, you know, and legally, you mean, well, just like her dad would take her Hmm. and keep her from me. And I mean, rightfully so, because I mean, I wasn't even in a position to take care of myself, much less, you know, a child. Um, So by the time I went to treatment, I was just so beat up and so broken that like I was desperate. I was willing to do whatever it took. So between my alcohol, alcohol abuse and my drug abuse, I had put myself basically in a state of psychosis. So the beginning of my recovery journey started in an inpatient psychiatric facility um, where I detoxed and uh, got on, like, it didn't, the meds I got on there didn't turn out to be the right ones. It was actually, you know, later on that I found the right ones, but, you know, that was kind of like my detoxing period, trying to get my like mental health under control. Um, So then I went to short-term rehab from there. And I was the nerdy kid in the rehab, walking around with a notebook, taking notes everywhere, keeping all the handouts. Like, I just, I didn't ever want to go back to what my life was before that. So I listened to everything. You know, I, you know, I did trauma groups to work on how to work through my trauma and, you know, I did parenting stuff and I just, I did everything that they would let me do because I didn't want to go back. So I did, um, short-term rehab and then, um, I actually did long-term rehab after that in Ben Salem at a women's program. Um, and that was, uh, that was amazing. It was uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, there was a, like, it, there's a mommy and me program there, but I didn't have my daughter there. Right. I just did the women's program, but I still did parenting classes and I had amazing therapists, like just, uh, you know, people that are so passionate about what they're doing that like it shows in everything they do, you know? So I did that. And then I did a halfway house on the, in the same program on the same property. You know, I got a job, I started working and, you know, then I actually moved into, uh, it's called a transition house. It's like halfway between a recovery house and a sober house, as far as like, uh, freedoms go. Mm. So, um, because I had spent so much time in inpatient treatment, you know, that was the best decision for me. And I stayed there for, a long time too. I just wanted to do whatever it took to stay sober. Uh, when you talk about trauma, is that, and you can be as specific or not as, as you want, is that from growing up previous to your drug use where you're talking about, you know, what you were dealing with as far as your self-esteem and not liking yourself, or is it trauma that, that compounds after the drinking and the drug use has started? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, 
even before I was like super heavy into the drinking and partying in high school, I still partied. Okay. You know, um, so I had, I had been drinking in a way that you could consider alcoholically. And I found myself as a result of that in a situation where something really traumatic happened to me. And, um, that like really just kind of put me in a different level because it wasn't just me trying to escape me anymore. It was me trying to numb the pain. So once that happened, like, you know, I mean, I, obviously there, there could have been turning back, but looking back at that point, there was no turning back at that point. Once you come out and, and maybe even now that you're five years through, what do you look back at that time that was different that you maybe didn't know, didn't have in your life that you have now, or you understand now that makes things better, different? Well, I mean, once I started doing drugs, alcohol wasn't as interesting to me anymore. So even once I accepted the fact that I was a drug addict, I didn't accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. So I would try to stop doing drugs, but continue drinking. Mm. And so I, I didn't understand or maybe didn't want to understand that, you know, at least for me, those two go hand in hand. So, you know, trying to stop doing drugs, but not stop drinking, you know, tripped me up a whole bunch. So, you know, now I know that when it comes to any and all mind and mood altering substances outside of, you know, psychiatric medication, whatever, that I can't touch them. It's interesting. You know, I had a, I had a friend go through, um, about his battles with alcoholism in his in his 20s while you know we were at our prime you might say um and i remember and he had been sober for years and and was uh still smoking weed and i remember um when he fell off the wagon and his sponsor came and was like dude you're smoking weed that's like moving your seat to the back of the to the moving your seat to the back of the titanic you're still going down Mm -hmm. And I'd never like considered that before. I'd never heard that phrasing before, but it gave me a very different perspective on just addiction and mind altering substances, period, for people who struggle with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also, for plenty of times that I was trying to get clean, thought that weed was fine. And I mean, I support, you know, weed being used medicinally and recreationally for people who aren't you know, drug addicts, whatever. Right. Um, but for me, like it, it loops in with everything. So, you know, I can't do that. Um, and I might be able to maintain it for a little while, mm -hmm. you know, like not doing anything but smoking weed, but eventually it leads me back to the things that I, you know, use that I cannot control Yeah, and I can't control myself when I'm on them. Uh, did you, you were, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing the math in my head. Does that make you 24 when you had your daughter? Yes. Um, where were you in life when that, when that happened? Uh, well, um, super, super into my addiction. Um, I was working as a waitress at Red Lobster 
And I was making really good money, you know, having a great time partying with all my, you know, colleagues, um, all the time. And I mean, I like to think that they didn't know that I was like doing drugs while they were all just like partying and having a good time. But looking back, they probably knew. Um, and I fell in love with my best friend and, uh, you know, we got engaged and then a month later found out that I was pregnant with Isabella. Um, and I tried really hard to stay on the straight and narrow after that. Um, I think that everyone kind of thought that the baby was going to save me, Mm. you know, that, um, if I just had that responsibility and like had someone that was relying on me, that that would make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I did okay for a little bit, but, um, you know, I relapsed after she was born. Um, and you know, that started the, you know, me being in and out of her life constantly. When you were young, did you have any thoughts about family, marriage, kids? Did you, you mean, you talked about you and your best friend talking about, Oh, when, you know, when our <laughs> kids are going to grow up together. Was that through high school, middle school, high school? Was that kind of the, the thought of like the classic family? I mean, probably. Yeah. Uh, but the older I got, the less that mattered to me, you know, cause I mean, I remember when we were really young, it was super uncommon to have someone's friend's parents be divorced. You know, I mean, obviously the divorce rate shot up really high after that, but you know, in my, in my early twenties, it was just kind of, uh, whatever happens happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and I tried not to put like any expectation on it. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I remember like kids when I was younger in elementary school, their parents getting divorced and thinking like, oh, yeah, look at like it was like almost like a like a thing to be able to brag about, like, oh, my parents are together. And then my parents get divorced in middle school. And it's like, uh, oh, no, I'm one of those kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, re- I remember that like very clearly of how it was kind of like you just didn't see it a whole lot. And then you start to hear more and more about, it, and then it happens to you. And now I know so many people that get married and divorce, you know, after m- minimal years, no kids. So <laughs> that's where we are now with, <laughs> with marriage. Yeah. Well, I've been married and divorced twice. twice. So yeah, I'm uh, just really, really trying hard not to be Ross Geller from friends. Cause like after the second divorce, all I could hear in my head was three divorces, three divorces. Never watched Friends. No. Never watched it. Still not? Still haven't seen still haven't seen it. I'm aware of like stuff because when we were uh, I think in middle school, the Rachel haircut was like huge. And I remember mm-hmm. like Katie Evelyn had the Rachel haircut. And <laughs> just and but that was about it. I just watched you ever see Honest Trailers online? The what? Honest Trailers online. No. So on YouTube, they've got this thing. It's a it's a YouTube channel called Screen Junkies. And every week they do an honest trailer for a movie. Uh, and basically it's just like a like a if someone to want someone were to take all the marketing stuff out of it and just tell you this is really what it is. This is mm-hmm. what the movie is kind of blunt, honest truth. Um, they do that. And occasionally they do TV shows. So they did Friends like a year or two ago. And that's the first time I've seen any of these clips. I never knew there were so many repetitive could you be so more so you know, any, <laughs> I never knew that that was like a thing and just all these all I'd ever heard about was like how there were no black people on the show. That was all I ever really knew about friends. 
I guess now that I think about it, that's true. Uh, and and that the friends dated. That was that was like the bulk of what I knew. Hmm. Well, I but, mean, like I was obsessed with it. So like you saying that you've never watched it is like, <gasps> but. See, here's the funny thing is the things that I was obsessed with, nobody watched. So like. Like what? Well, like like pro wrestling. Very few people watched pro wrestling. I was the wrestling guy in high school. I wore the wrestling t-shirts and I would talk to everyone about the wrestling news. And you're talking about like WWE. Yeah. Like the rock and stone cold. And and that's the stuff that I used to like talk to people about. I'd have all the magazines and stuff. Um, And no one was, I was the guy that would force people to like, like to pay attention to wrestling with me. That's what my friends would have to do when they would come over. You snuck out. I made them stay in and watch VHS tapes from 1992 <laughs> to see Bret Hart win the Intercontinental title. You know, like it's, would it was, shock you to hear that I know exactly what you're talking about? I, that would shock me. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, uh, my oldest daughter's father, my first husband, was really into that. He grew up watching it. And so the entire time we were together, almost every night, um, every Monday night, we were watching Monday Night Raw. Oh, get out. Yeah. Okay. All right. See, so now you know how kind of like oddballish that is, though. For sure. The other thing I was really obsessed with, um, and it's a little bit of a mixture, but I think as I was in high school era, it really transformed into this. It started with Saved by the Bell, but by the time I got into high school, I was heavy into 90210. I mean, I got it super into Saved by the Bell, but 90210 wasn't really my thing. Like, I knew about it, and, you know, I could probably tell you based on a picture like what character that person was but i didn't really watch it so when tiffany amber Thiessen, uh when saved by the bell ended and her and zach got married in vegas uh i it, like news broke out like next season she's joining 90210 and i'm like well gotta start watching that now oh, and yeah. i was like anything tiffany amber Thiessen did i would watch those real shitty abc movie of the sunday night movie of the weeks that she would do mm-hmm. she fought i still remember the name she fought alone and like these really horrible weekly movies. Uh, I used to watch <laughs> anything that she would do. Son-in-law, that movie with uh, her and Polly Shore. Oh, I'm I love that movie. Okay, so yeah. I would still watch that movie right now. I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> 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 I just watched like I was just a sucker for and like no one watched this stuff at all. Again, I could make like one or two friends. I could force them to get into it with me, but I was like on an island on my own for TV shows. Yeah. Well, Did it's you, not bad to be different. This is true. You just now, to, now it's not bad to be different. <laughs> but when you're looking for like a partner to like talk about David and Donna and their relationship and no one wants to talk to you about it, it's tough, Jess. It's tough. <laughs> I, I feel your pain, dude. Did you uh, did you have a, a friends was your show, but did you have a movie that you were into in high school? Your favorite movie? Um, I mean, I must have watched Never Been Kissed with oh, drew yeah. barrymore like i don't know a few thousand times that's um oh yeah and i mean like even when it wasn't new anymore but uh mostly like shows after that you know and gray's anatomy came out when oh. i was in high school and wow i'm really? not even ashamed to admit that i still watch it every night on netflix while i'm going to sleep gray's is that old that it was on when you were in high school yeah wow that's why I mean, what what year is this now? Uh, so I think I graduated 18 years ago. That makes sense because we're we're uh, well, I was 01. So that was 
19 years ago. So that, uh, so you would have been a little bit less, right? You're 04. So what are we in 2022? Oh, that is 18. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> sometimes it's hard to remember that this is 2022 because the last two years of our lives have just been completely bizarre. I know. Date, like I've lost the last three years. Whenever I tell someone something, they go a couple years ago, a couple years ago, starting from before COVID. Cause that's <laughs> when my brain starts picking up dates again. Exactly. Um, but never been kissed is like, I, I have this joke that I used to, I used to always say, if I could catch, she's always that and never been kissed on a Sunday afternoon on ABC family, I'm not leaving the house. Oh, for sure. That was like the, one of the best and, uh, uh, Courtney Cox's, uh, husband. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. David Arquette. I mean, they're not together anymore. No, no, but, uh, also just to tie it all in together with all of our likes, former WCW wrestling champion, David Arquette wrestled for a brief period of time. No, he did not. Yeah. Yeah. He won the title and all that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to have to Google that later. There is a documentary. So he's a big wrestling fan. He loves wrestling. And he had this horrible run where he worked in a wrestling when that movie ready to rumble came out with him and Scott Kahn, where they're like wrestlers. And I think Oliver Platt is like some legendary wrestler. It's just, I can see the movie poster, but I don't think I saw the movie. No one saw the movie. So <laughs> it's uh so everyone hated it so much and they and they made him the world champion and the fans just crapped all over it that it's haunted David Arquette his his entire rest of his life. It's like a big joke with wrestling fans of David Arquette. Huh. Um so a few years ago, he decided to try and like redeem himself and he entered into a what's called a death match and where you can beat guys up with you know, sticks and shards of glass and light tubes and stapler guns and exacto knives and stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So there's a documentary about this uh, called, um, I think it's called You Can't Kill David Arquette about his match, this death match that he had that went terribly wrong. The wrestler <laughs> ended up, yeah, like the guy ended up not trusting him and, and they ended up getting in like a real tussle in the ring which ends with the guy stabbing David Arquette in the jugular. Uh, <laughs> and he starts like leaking out blood. And he, oh tells the guy, he tells David Arquette, like, just lay there. So I'll, and I'll pin you. And he does that. And then Luke Perry has to like rush him out and they go to the oh my God. So there's a little, there's a, a gift for you. You can't kill David Thank Arquette. You. Yeah. It's a documentary <laughs> streaming. I'm sure on all the Netflixes and whatnot. <laughs> See, this is why no one watches wrestling. It's just a little bit. It's a little bit off. It's, it is a little bit off, but you know, it's like, so actually so many little boys watched it growing up, like whether they'll admit it or not. Yeah. But like, you know, there's a storyline ish and you know, it, most of it looks real. So yeah. You know, um, are you not entertained? Exactly. Um, you mentioned never been kissed. And I feel like the, like the big part of that was, Drew Barrymore trying to be liked um, mm -hmm. by the cool kids. Did you, I mentioned earlier, just by like your, your partying habits um, that that sounds like cool kid stuff and the fluid friends. Did you consider yourself? And I don't know because I didn't know your, your grade well enough, but did you consider yourself a cool kid? No, in the popular definitely crowd? not. I mean, there were people in the popular crowd that I hung out with, but um no, definitely not, especially not after I, you know, took up my cause with musical theater. <laughs> That's a, it's always a negative. You know what? 
Uh, my daughter's really into it now. Um, she's actually at theater camp. Um, she's doing a legally blonde junior, um, you know, at the end of it, at the end of next week. Um, but like, it's cool to her and to her friends and like, it's popular and whatever. And I'm just thinking how different would my life have been if it was cool to do when I was doing it instead of something that made me kind of nerdy. Well, yeah, there were no like, uh, like, you know, Glee and high school musical. Oh, I know. After Glee came out, it was so much cooler to be a theater nerd. Yeah, just it wasn't in the masses. And that's why I asked, like, what got you into it? Because it usually starts from just like your parents take you to stuff. Uh, Yeah, oh, for sure. When I talked to uh, Amanda Christian uh, about her love, and we had the same thing where our parents used to take us to the Valley Forge Music Center or the Valley (laughs) Valley Forge Music Center where they would do like shows like, you know, monthly or whatever. And, and those were our experiences, but that was just like a thing for me and my mom to go mm-hmm. do. And then it's like, Oh, well now you guys all have this and no one, if you didn't have that experience, you did not get it. No, for sure. I mean, most people didn't get it. <laughs> and now it's just the whole new world. That's cool that your daughter, uh, your daughter's found a, a passion for it now that it's, mm-hmm. it's not damaging <laughs> to the reputation. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm happy for her, you know, like she gets to, I mean, it's not like kids aren't awful anymore because they are. And I mean, like, you know, generally nonviolent human being, I've wanted to punch a few 12 year olds after my daughter came home from school crying, you know, like kids are awful, but she like, she seems to have found a way to, be herself and you know at least be surrounded by a bunch of other people that are cool with it yeah you know she gets bullied and i hate it i hate it i hate it i hate it but um you know i just keep reminding her that like you know the kids that are bullying the other kids like they're peaking in middle school high school whatever like you know, you get to be exactly who you are and go on to live this amazing full life based on your passions. Like, you know, feel sorry for the kids uh-huh. that are so unhappy with themselves that they have to tear other people down. Uh, do you believe that in reality? To an extent, sure. Yeah. I was going to say, because I feel I feel like that's what I always used to hear. And I got I had my, my bully bullied moments um and i still check out some of those kids on instagram and facebook i'm like they look like they're doing okay <laughs> well i mean <laughs> come on instagram and facebook is definitely not a meter is, for how people are actually doing right this is true Everyone this is how we started it put forward did you get bullied in in school um a little bit um i mean not a ton but i mean made fun of sure a lot um, the gist that I've gotten from talk, and I'm, I'm always curious from the girl perspective of like where it goes, because from the guy's perspective, like for me, it was always just very aggressive. You got a beef. I got a beef. Let's yell about it. Or maybe we'll meet in the hallway or the bathroom and, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll punch each other a couple times and, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe they'll punch me and I'll just, you know, <laughs> not do anything else. But like, it was always very aggressive. So I'm always curious, uh, to what extent it, it goes for girls. I've heard it can be. Well, ranging from like passive to shit written on the bathroom walls to um, everyone just stops talking to me. And I don't know why these girls aren't my friends anymore. I mean, I would definitely trade 
like some chest bumping and fists thrown for the way the girls do it. Mm. You know, girls are horrible. Like, and you know, I sometimes like my daughter will say something that like sounds a little mean girlish. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You stop that right now because like you're coming home crying because somebody made fun of you for something. Mm. Think about what you just said. And the fact that you are passing that pain on to somebody else, but like, you know, group shunning and stuff written on the bathroom walls and gossip so much gossip. Like, you know, you, you make one mistake or you have one embarrassing moment and girls will tell everyone that they come across. It doesn't even matter if they're this girl's friend, she's still going to tell. And if a girl has a beef with somebody and she has a friend group, the whole friend group has a beef with somebody. And, you know, you know, fake nice to your face and super horrible to, you know, you behind your back. Like the, um, the girl stuff is way more of a mind fuck in my language, but I don't know how else to put it, you know, like, I would, I would so much rather like we throw a couple punches and have it be done. Oh, it's never done. Actually, one of my favorite high school memories was um, two dudes got in a fight in uh, what did we call that area where the halls converged the knuckle? Is that what we called it? Oh, I don't know about this. See, so are you talking about after the construction got done? Yeah. Because so I did my first like two, three years in the old school. Okay. And then like okay. my senior year was like the new. So I don't yeah. know these. What is the knuckle? <laughs> well, um, the upstairs science hall. D hall. And then right? down the stairs. Okay. And then the downstairs science hall and up the stairs, basically right in front of the elevator. Okay. Okay. So like, I don't know, three or four different hallways converged right there. So two dudes got into a fist fight and... I mean, I wasn't close enough to it to be like freaked out by it, but obviously fascinated. So I had to watch and they were big dudes. Like I want to say football players. Mm. So out of nowhere, Mr. Dixon, my favorite teacher of all time comes in and grabs this dude up with his arm around his neck and pulls him off the other dude and slams him up against the wall. That's his move. Oh my God, that's his, that's his finishing maneuver. He did the same thing to me. <laughs> well, maybe it was you that I saw. <laughs> that's incredible. No, so I got in a fight in, in the cafeteria with C Money uh, my senior year, like a week before graduation. And he was not defending himself. And I'm just kicking him, like I'm punching <laughs> him and kicking him and kneeing him. And I see this guy run in from the side and I don't know who it is. So he grabs me. And now I'm just like, literally, now I have no arms and I'm kicking C Money in the face. And then all of a sudden I couldn't breathe and he he tight he tightens up on my neck. And yep. that's when I realized it's Mr. Dixon. It's and he's Mr. Like, Dixon. He's like, it's over. It's over. And I'm like, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. And he came and apologized to me afterwards. He's like, I'm sorry, but that kid couldn't defend himself. I had to make you stop. And that's incredible to know that that was his go-to. Dude, I'm telling you, like the Navy choke. The best dude ever. Period. Mr. Dixon. Hands awesome. down. Uh for, it's funny because I never had him, but like I had. I didn't just, either. The, yeah, everyone just had this utmost respect for him. Oh, yeah. Well, and I like, I don't even, oh, you know what? He was my homeroom teacher 
in ninth grade. Okay. And only ninth grade. But like, you know, we connected like on a like a student and mentor level. So for the entire rest of high school, I dropped into his room all the time. Oh, that's cool. And like, you know, talked to him about stuff that was bothering me and hung out with him on my free periods. Like the coolest dude ever. And Definitely. all he was was my homeroom teacher in ninth grade, but I will never forget him as long as I live. Sometimes I still hear from him on Facebook. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did, did you have a favorite teacher? That I actually took a class of? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, um, Madame Irish. Mm. She was my French, French teacher. Um, and I'm pretty sure that was like 11th and 12th. Um, but... Oh, you took a lot of foreign language. Well, yeah, I took French all through middle school and high school. Wow. Don't ask me to speak it now. It's gone. Okay. It's gone. I understand so much more than I could speak, but it's gone. I, oh, God, I'm sorry, Madame Irish. Oh, man. But, <laughs> you know, um, at first, uh, we kind of butted heads because she was very strict and, mm. you know, whatever. But, like, turns out I needed that, you know? And she just ended up being one of the best, most memorable teachers I had. Strict how? How strict does French class get? I'm curious. Well, I mean, pretty strict. I I mean, I, I don't even know if she would remember this, but at one point I wore a skirt to school and apparently it was too short. Mm. So she had me stand up and I actually had to read the dress code guidelines out loud for how short my skirt could be. And in fact, it was technically too short for the dress code, but I didn't make that mistake again. You know, that's another interesting, uh, I remember like all these rules kind of coming in when we were going out. Um, and a lot of it was like, well, one was the water bottles cause kids were throwing vodka in their water bottles were like brand new at this point mm. where like everyone yeah. had a, you know, had a water bottle and kids were putting vodka in it. And that's when the school realized that they couldn't detect it. So that was just like a no-go on water bottles. But the other was the was the dress code. Um, and I imagine it's always been a thing, but I felt like this is where we were officially getting like rules about the inseam and how far from your knee yeah. skirts and shorts can go and like no tube tops. And what are the not two tops? So what are the things with the with the straps? What are those those shirts? Well, like a strappy tank top or like a halter top? Yeah, like a strappy. I think tank? Either, I, I don't think yeah. either of them were allowed. Yeah, like you couldn't have the thin strap, the thin strapped mm -hmm. uh, shirts. All that stuff was like being outlawed. Um, yeah, I imagine though when you're a girl, like those are the things that that's all you're buying. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes yeah, but like I, I mean, I'm in leggings and a super soft, comfortable shirt right now, and that's like pretty much my life. Like I dress for comfort, but um, you know, I. Uh, my 12 year old is also a political activist oh. and um, she thinks that uh, dress codes are antiquated and out of date because if, uh, if, if, if a woman wearing something like that uh, makes it so that a boy can't control himself, um, then the problem is with the boy, not with the clothes. So um, God, I love her. <laughs> she is fabulous in every single way. I was going to say this is, sounds like some this is exactly sounds like how we would describe this today. But and I don't know. I guess the dress codes are still I got to think a thing. But um, yeah, there's there's still a thing. 
it, you didn't feel oppressed by it back then though right no not even close i mean you know the and especially looking back as an adult like it's not you know it's about what's appropriate in a particular situation and what's not right you know like i mean probably shouldn't be wearing skirts that if you bent over then you know people would see all sorts of stuff you know i mean maybe in some situations that's appropriate but in a classroom setting no sure yeah i mean i'm a feminist don't get me wrong but you know like there's a there's a time and a place to be exactly as wild and you know outlandish as you want to be but school is not one of them yeah you know what's interesting is that i i feel like that rule is supposed to be protective for women um protective we'll use that in if you're listening mm-hmm. to this podcast i just put up air quotes but for <laughs> for guys you know our our big thing was i think they said no tank tops uh but also like you know we were all the we were the baggy jeans era uh mm-hmm. and i i never felt like it was protective of us to say that we couldn't wear jeans that show you know with our boxers sticking out or mm-hmm. you know for guys that didn't wear boxers their their tidy whiteies or whatever <laughs> Cause there were some, but I felt like it was more like a disgust. Like they were disgusted with our, with, with seeing our asses and, and for the, <laughs> no, for the I, guys. I think that's accurate. <laughs> it's so interesting how, you know, just the tone is so different uh, oh, yeah. for the way it was for guys versus girls, as far as this dress code. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get all political, but like it is, it's completely different, you know? Yeah. And I understand it to an extent, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd really appreciate it if uh, we could raise some future generations to be better, you know? Yeah. And not victimize women for what they're wearing. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the start. Mm-hmm. Um, did you work in school? No. Um, well, senior year. Um, I worked at Tony A's Pizza in Springhouse. Absolutely. By the Blockbuster. Um, yeah. Which is a uh, pharmacy now. Yeah, the one the, the Springhouse Pharmacy moved. That whole that whole I'm doing this it, from memory, that but whole that whole thing got redone. Now. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the Springhouse Pharmacy or the village pharmacy moved up to that. Oh yeah. Right? Is Tony A still there though? I haven't been over I, there in a while. That I don't know. Well, you know, I worked there senior year, but um, you know, my parents always wanted my job to be school. Mm. You know, I mean they my parents both have college degrees. Um, you know, my mom went to UVA and then William and Mary, um, and my dad has a degree from LSU. Um, so, you know, school was supposed to be my job. Mm. Um, so yeah, I worked a little bit. Do you, and and I know that, you know, you went through so much through your twenties. Um, but do you think that that, uh, I'm just wondering if you, did that affect you at all as far as like not working when you were a teenager and then getting into where like you're a grown up and you have to work and this is kind of like the first time you're really giving it a go? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't really think so. You know, once I, uh, it turns out that college wasn't really for me, you know, and it's not for everybody. Right. And, I hear that a you lot. Know, um, once I started working, it was just something you had to do. And I mean, I waited tables for over a decade. So, you know, at least it was fun. You know, I mean, it sucked. It was hard. And like this, like is, um, 
my second carpal tunnel surgery because I had this one done um, in April um, from carrying trays all those years. Um, and it turns out that it doesn't go away. Like I would have flare ups and then it would stop hurting. So I figured that it was just going away and it wasn't going away. So, you know, years and years later, I'm having, you know, carpal tunnel release surgery on both of my hands. Um, but it was fun. You know, we were like, we all made a game out of it. We, you know, even if you hated people, like, if you couldn't stand somebody's personality, you still worked with them as a team in a restaurant and probably still drank with them after work. Mm -hmm. You know, you just like, you know, left whatever like differences aside. Like, I mean, it was, it was so physically taxing. And to this day, I still have serving nightmares that like, I have more tables than I can handle and I'm in the weeds and I can't get out. Like I still have those dreams. So obviously I'm somewhat traumatized from working as a waitress all those years, but like that we were a family, you know, like it was, it was awesome. I still have dreams that I'm walking into the Springhouse Wawa where I worked for like seven years and I'm going to the back and realizing that I've, I have not checked the schedule for two weeks and I've missed all my shifts and I'm wondering <laughs> if I'm, I'm wondering if I'm fired or not. <laughs> I have that dream multiple times a year. It's, it's actually pretty fascinating. The things that traumatize us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, God, I just flashed back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just had a flashback. Just like put you in a weird mind space, right? <laughs> I legit was thinking about like the latex gloves and the powder and like when we would be out of extra large and they tell you, just put the mediums on and you're just like, can I, <laughs> can I take your order? Oh God. Actually, I do remember you working there oh wawa mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so yeah that would that be was where for I, a while too yeah i worked there from when i was 16 so the deal with that was like my first job was at mcdonald's and uh <laughs> there was an upperclassman named wade craig who worked at wawa and um and he was like dude they pay six bucks an hour and I was like, oh, wow, that's so much better than the 515 I'm making at McDonald's. <laughs> so the day I turned 16, I called and he was like, oh, yeah, we'll pay six. And I was just like, I'm rich. I am rich. <laughs> and I stayed there. Uh, I stayed at Wawa through college. I left that store once I graduated. Um, but I stayed at Wawa for like another three years. Um, well, I worked at Wawa for a little bit. Like if you if you stick around, they take pretty good care of you. Yeah. You know, it was like especially as a kid. Um it was like if you work 30 hours, like one, you, you accrued vacation time, uh, you got like private stock. Um, so all and you got benefits, you got like $500 stipend a year, which was great for like prescription or ibuprofen, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, Anything working in food service, you need ibuprofen. If yeah. you've worked in food service, have you taken your ibuprofen today? <laughs> Oh man. And you know, around there, you got the free soda. So I used to get wicked caffeine headaches, like horrible <laughs> caffeine. And I needed like two to three uh, ibuprofen like every day if I wasn't drinking soda. But uh, it's Hoagie Fest now and it makes me shudder when I'm seeing. I literally saw someone with like a six foot uh, Wawa Hoagie earlier <laughs> today. And I'm just like, get away from me. Well, you know what makes me do that? What's Endless that? shrimp. Red lobster. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be the cheddar biscuits. Oh, um, I like just started to be able to eat them again. Yeah. Um, I was working at Red Lobster when I was pregnant with my oldest. 
And I mean, with both my kids, I had morning sickness every hour that I was awake. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, if I ate the cheddar biscuits, which I hated from serving them and having people be so insane about them, Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, I could keep Cheddar Bay biscuits down. But I mean, (laughs) it took me years and years and years and years to be able to enjoy them again. Fun fact, I've never been to a Red Lobster. Really? Never been. I don't. I've made the cheddar biscuits. Someone gave me like a box of them uh, that Mm -hmm. I made a few years ago. And that's the closest I've ever come. And it's funny as like, I think growing up, it was always like a joke of like, I think that's maybe where they went for like big nights out on married with children. So in my head, (laughs) Red Lobster was like not this good place. And then I was, I saw a commercial, you know, many years later. I'm like, oh, they just sell lobster there? That's cool. Like, I never really <laughs> thought about that, that they just sell, like, you could get lobster there. What is the, what was the deal with the Red Lobster as far as quality? I mean, as, as good as you can get in a chain restaurant like that. And I mean, every, uh, every Red Lobster has a live main lobster tank. Um, and I don't know what it is now, but when I was working, there were two different sizes one and a quarter pound and three pound. And the price depended on the market price of the day. So when we were bored, we used to um, take the lobsters out of the tank and play with them now. (laughs) I think it's cruel. I think it's considered cruel to animals now. Well, it's not like we were poking them or anything. We just put them (laughs) on the ground to see if they would race each other. (laughs) Fun fact, they don't race each other on (laughs) the carpet. No? (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think I just had like wrong mis. I just had misconceptions about Red Lobster that I, I cheated myself out of the the experience. Well, I mean, I can't speak for now. Um, I think the last time I went to a Red Lobster, who, uh, might have been for like Isabella's third birthday. Okay, and she's twelve. Um, but I mean, I would eat there. And I've worked there. So I think, I think that says everything Yeah, that I've worked there and I would eat there. And you would still eat there. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is going to, this is going to be a bucket list item for me now. (laughs) Red lobster. You let me know how your experience is. I will. I'm going to put this on the, on the immediate must do list. (laughs) Um, so what, how did you, you know, you talked about your parents and, um, I forget the term that you used as far as like gaining their, their trust back, but like through how, like waking up every day. Um, oh, my living amends. Living amends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine I'm guessing, but I imagine for like a, for like a young kid, young kids are so much more forgiving, but it yeah. sticks, but it sticks with them probably in ways that they don't know yet. Um, how do you gain the trust back of your daughter? Well, I mean, like just really just raw is that um, when I like I did the uh, thing in Iowa and everyone thought that was going to make the difference. Um, I left right after her first day of kindergarten to go do this nine months in Iowa. And then I came back and I had an apartment in Concha Hawkins. She was with me every weekend, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't using in front of her all the time or anything like that, but 
like my general rules that I waited until she went to sleep. Uh, so the next day I didn't want to get off the couch or, you know, whatever. So she still has memories of me being sick, you know, and not really wanting to do much of anything. And then, you know, when everyone figured out that, you know, I had relapsed, I was using again. Um, and I went to treatment this time when I got sober. Um, I, uh, I mean, it's not like, it's not like anyone really knows what to do in that situation, but, um, you know, I, my ex didn't let me see or speak to her for a year and a half. Hmm. Um, and obviously I wasn't around for that time, but, you know, I heard from him, from my parents, uh, like what her behavior was like, like she scratched my face out of all of the pictures she had, um, of the two of us. Uh, I used to dye my hair red, like really red at that point. And if she saw a woman with red hair, she would break down crying. Hmm. Um, just like, uh, also because she was a little bit too young to really understand, uh, what was going on, you know, just like general fits of anger. Um, and you know, through the, uh, process of us reuniting after I got sober, we actually spent some time with a therapist. Um, and I mean, at that point, I think she was just so happy that I was back and that I was fighting to be with her that, um, I mean, all I, I, all I had to do was stay sober and she was going to be happy. I mean, we, uh, you know, we started with ses sessions in this therapist's office and then, you know, we started seeing each other for a couple hours on Sundays and then I was getting her all like most of the day on Sundays. And then, you know, it started with overnights, whatever. And now, um, now I have 50, 50 custody of her, but, um, sometimes I do check in with her, like, you know, um, especially when I get sick, um, which doesn't happen a lot because, you know, we've been homebound a whole bunch sure. because of COVID and wearing masks. But, um, even now, sometimes I check in with her when I get sick and say, like, you understand that this is sick, sick. This isn't sick. Like, you know, I am you know, recovering from using or whatever, and I can't get up off the couch. And, you know, she's like, yeah, dumb mom. I know. Mm. Like, as if like, why are you even asking me that? But, um, you know, I mean, she seems great now, you know, but I, I show up, you know, right. I, I take her to school. I pick her up from school. I mean, not every day, like, you know, my parents help me out, uh, with stuff a lot being a single parent. Um, but I'm, I'm present for her events. I, you know, I do stuff with her. I, uh, ha I let her have her friends over, you know, whatever. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm a mom. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't even see her get worried because like everything I do shows her that she doesn't have to worry. Hmm. I'm curious, you, know, you said you, you did, um, you soaked up all the knowledge you could when you were, when you were in your inpatient, uh, including parenting classes. Um, what's the difference now with, with Charlie, uh, versus Isabella having those classes, what you've learned or what you realize you missed? Um, I mean, I missed a lot with Isabella and I hate that. Like, I really hate that. Um, but you know, Charlie is Charlie turned two this past April and I have been there with her every morning when she's woken up. 
Um, you know, I've been there for every fever, every runny nose, you know, um, you know, just about every bedtime, you know, and, uh, it's just like, it's just, it's so much easier when you're not like abusing substances, you know, I mean, I get, I get plenty frustrated, you know, I'm exhausted. I mean, she didn't sleep through the night until like two weeks before her first birthday. And, um, you know, I, I was, I basically been, um, you know, on like parenting wise, it's just been her and me, um, for most of her life. So, I mean, she was waking up like four or five times a night. Mm. I mean, sleep deprivation does really crazy things to you, but like, I, it's, it's not even so much that I have to like implement stuff that I learned in parenting classes or anything like that, because, like once I removed the drugs and alcohol and went through all the treatment that I went through and, you know, I, I still go to meetings, like, you know, I'm still active in the recovery community. Like these things are just there, like, as far as like me being able to handle them. Instincts. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, we're supposed to have them as women, but you know, they were, uh, they were drowned out by drugs and alcohol for a while, but now that there's nothing like in the way, like all these things are instinctual. I mean, I don't, I'm not always the best at handling my toddler looking at me and saying no, when I ask her to do something. Um, but you know, the rest of it is, is pretty natural. That's cool to hear. Do you, um, what's your circle like now? um, after sobriety, I know you said that you're still, you still go to meetings and, um, I know a lot of my, my friends that have been through programs and, um, they end up like surrounding themselves with people also in the program is like from a social standing so that, you know, events that normally would drive people to, to drink Super Bowl, whatever, um, <laughs> they kind of have a different, they have a different approach to it now is, is your circle similar? Do you surround yourself with people in the program? Are you living normal life and just going to meetings? What is your, your world like now? No, my, my world is recovery. Um, it's not like I can't hang out with people that aren't in recovery, but you're not going to catch me in a bar. Uh, you're probably not going to catch me at a party where people are drinking. Um, I can be around it. Um, and not drink. Um, I, I don't ever put my situ myself in a situation where I could be in front of drugs. Um, because that's a lot harder to say no to than a drink. Um, but you know, I, most of my friends are from AA, you know, I, I do stuff with people after meetings, I go to meetings, um, you know, and it's just easier that way, hmm. you know, it's not like, it's not like I can't do those other things, but, uh, you know, another saying in the program, like if you go to a barbershop enough times, eventually you're going to get a haircut. So, um, I've been in situations where there are social situations where there's alcohol around me and, you know, my fam, I'm the only one in my family that is a drug addict and alcoholic. Um, so my family drinks and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as social situations go, I, I just don't really want to tempt fate too often, you know, yeah. like why? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not even worth it. Um, three years into sobriety and you had Charlie, what, how was that hard? Such a, you know, you're, 
I just remember thinking, I remember seeing that, you know, you were, you were into your sobriety and then pregnant. And I was just wondering how hard that, how hard of a life change that was while you're still kind of, I imagine three years in after years and years of drug abuse, you're still trying to find yourself. Um, how do you, is that true or was it easy or did you, how do you find a center in there to well, stay I true mean, to what you want to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of both, you know, um, also it being 10 years, uh, since my last, last did this. child, <laughs> like things were different. My body hurt a lot more because I was a lot older. Um, but I did find that, uh, I, I enjoyed, um, I, well, let's, I mean, honestly, I hated being pregnant. I hated every second of it. Like you're huge. Your body's not your own. Like, I mean, I would snore so loud. I would wake myself up. Mm. Like just it's uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable, but the rest of it was just like awesome. Like she's my sobriety baby, mm. you know, like there's, uh, I wish, uh, that I could have given that to my older daughter. Um, but I, I don't discount what she and I have having a restored relationship, but, um, you know, and it's a lot easier when you're super upfront with every single medical provider you come in contact with, mm. um, that you don't want, you know, pain medication unless it's absolutely necessary, you know, wow. and you know, that kind of stuff. So it was, it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would be. There were some difficult parts. Um, like I had kidney stones, um, and that was rough. Uh, but I got through that, like, and I still have my sobriety time. So, you know, I, uh, I actually find that looking back on moments like that, where in the past I would have leaned on drugs or alcohol when I don't, it's like, hell yeah. Like I did that. Yeah. You know, it's something to look back on and see that I've conquered in a way that I could never conquer before. Um, was that the hardest thing to do in sobriety? No, no. Um, actually, uh, the becoming a single parent um, in sobriety and dealing, uh, you know, with a partner's relapse was the hardest thing that I did in sobriety. Mm. So, um, you know, but that's his story, not mine. Yeah. Um, but it was very hard. But there's, I mean, it was hard, but it wasn't impossible. Mm. You know, like I can look at all these things that come up and these challenges that I face. And as long as I don't pick up a drink or a drug, there's nothing I can't do. As soon as I put one of those substances in my body, I start limiting what I can do. What do you want to do? What is the, uh, what is the future for you or like immediate, I know you're, you know, you've, you've been working and, and you've got your home and you've got your, your daughters and what is it that you're, you know, what are you aiming for now? Well, I actually, um, I actually took time off work since, um, since before Charlie was born. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I have savings, I, I do other stuff. Um, and I, to, to be honest with you, I'm like, I'm not that far off from where I was when I was 18 years old, you know, like the, the bills will get paid and you know, whatever else, like 
I've thought about going into the recovery field and like being a recovery specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has its own challenges with me being in recovery myself. A lot of times people like that ignore their own recovery because they think that the time that they're spending at work is enough to keep them sober, but it's mm-hmm. not like you still have to maintain your own recovery. And because the success rates are so low for people um, coming out of treatment, uh, I think it would break my heart too much. You know, like it breaks my heart that like people disappear from my AA meetings, you know, like, but to actually pour myself into somebody while they're in treatment and, you know, share with them my experience, like you're giving of yourself, you know, to try to save somebody else. And a lot of people don't get saved. And I think that that would like really hurt me. Um, so at this point I'm just, uh, you know, doing what I'm doing and I'm, I'm going to figure out something to do that I enjoy doing, but like, uh, I can also leave at work. Yeah. That's a great point. The take home stress of, of certain professions. Well, I'm a single parent and I have two kids. So like got enough take home stress. I, I can't, I can't afford to take home stress from a job. Do you have any passions now? Anything that like, besides, besides, um, um, recovery that you think about, like, this could be something that maybe I, I'm going back to now, like high school of anything that you're know, into right? that you think you could do for a, for a career. I mean, I thought about, um, I thought about doing something like in the medical field, uh, you know, like, uh, like a radiology tech or, you know, at one point I was doing, um, classes to be a dental assistant, but, um, I picked an accelerated course and that's when I figured out that, um, you know, uh, my ADD was not going to allow for me to take an accelerated course that was like super intensive stuff outside of class. Like most of the learning required outside of class and inside class is applying what you figured out or read on your own Mm. outside of class. So, um, that didn't really work out. Um, but that doesn't mean that like a not accelerated course right. wouldn't be better for me. But I just I have to figure that out. Yeah, you got really just I want I want to do something where I'm helping people. You know, something where I can put my people skills to use and like, you know, I especially since I got sober, an extremely compassionate person these days. Like I, whatever I do, I want to like, you know, when I interact with people, I want them to feel like. I want them to feel better after having interacted with me. That's cool. Well, just, I, I mean, just from your honesty and your openness and your, you know, your optimism and everything, I feel like anyone that's struggling with, you know, addiction, if they listen to this, um, would feel better. I mean, I hope so. Cause I mean, you've seen my social media posts. Like I always say, if I can do it, anyone can, Yeah. you know, like, I was completely unrecognizable, like when I was in active addiction, like a horrible human being, like, and maybe not a horrible human being, but a human being who was constantly doing horrible things, Yeah, you know? So, you know, now it's obviously different from that, but like, if I can go from that to this, then anybody can. Yeah, definitely. That's a great, that's an incredible story. I'm sorry that you, you know, you went through these pains to, to get to this point, but I'm glad you're at this point. 
Oh, thanks. This is a, you know, I didn't think that at this point in my life, I would be experiencing the best years of my life, but I am. I really am. That's awesome. Congratulations to you. Seriously. Thank you. That was Jessica Smith. I really enjoyed this conversation. Jess isn't the first guest I've had living the sober life, but it doesn't make her story any less powerful. And maybe someone in need catches this episode. So thank you, Jess, for being so open and uplifting. You can watch full video of this conversation at youtube.com slash redshirtplaya. And of course, follow the podcast at We Weren't Friends in High School on Instagram and Facebook. In two weeks, I'll be back with my next guest, Andrew Black, twin brother of Lizzie Black, who was a guest on episode 215, of course, both from my class of 2001. This is the first completion of siblings I've been able to make on the show. Of course, Lizzie and Andrew have two older brothers, but I'm excited to share at least the other half of the 2001 experience of their family. So that will do it for this episode. I will see everyone in two weeks on a Monday morning with my guest, Andrew Black. Later.